everyone. I'm excited to announce that our podcast episodes are now available on YouTube. And that's mostly thanks to Angie for uploading them all. And that was no easy task because I think there was over 70 of them. Well, it wasn't an easy task, but I'm so glad they're all there for everyone to listen to. And while you're there, please remember to subscribe. Yes, by all means, please remember to subscribe so we can see you there too. And what's up next for our YouTube channel? Well, soon we'll be sharing some video content. So this should be really interesting. Oh, yeah, I think so. Hi, everyone. Hope you've been having a wonderfully creative week. I'm Rod Jones, and we celebrate what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice so you can learn and be more motivated from their life's experiences. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to Thought Rope Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we focus on sharing with everyone how they can think, be, and live more creatively. So why don't you tell us who our guest is today? Okay, our guest today is Jason Thornberry, and he's a writer that overcame one very major obstacle in his creative journey in life. Uh, You know, he's really quite an inspiration, and he's a very, very talented writer. And I actually understand that he started writing at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So how about hearing your quote for today? Okay, here's our quote for this episode. The challenge is the challenge when we learn to recognize the hidden opportunities when things don't go well. And that is by Rod Jones, artist. It's by me. It is by you. It was, I was able to use a quote that you came up with, Rod. And I think it kind of fits this episode. Although I have to say for our guest today, he became a writer that he wanted to become through some pretty tough circumstances. Yeah, and and he'll be sharing that with us. You know, I I know we're going to learn a lot about being creative and especially as a writer. Yeah. Uh, Jason really has a lot to share with us. I'm really excited about having him as a guest. Me too. I agree. So let's listen to what Jason Thornberry has to say. Jason, welcome to the Thought Row Podcast. You know, we always enjoy and learn so much from guests that are accomplished writers. Wouldn't you agree, Angie? I do. And hi, Jason. So good to have you with us today. Really looking forward to having you share your life's journey in becoming a writer and poet. Well, it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much. Well, before we start our interview, we always like to ask our guests, what they had for breakfast. So what did you have this morning, Jason? Uh, this morning, well, I, I think like most writers, probably maybe it's a stereotype, but uh, I do tend to uh, drink copious amounts of coffee. But this morning I had breakfast with my wife. It was really nice. We uh, had eggs and uh, biscuits with the spicy jelly that we get at Pike Place and coffee, of course. And, um, you know, we, had, we as indulgent as it sounds, we had mimosas as well because she had done this uh, this, this event uh, the day before, and she had some champagne that she picked up. Uh, we we wow. that sounds so lovely. It you guys so. had such a great breakfast and a romantic breakfast. I know, right? Yes, yes. Well, we're we're very, very, very close. So. Oh, well, that I'm, that's so nice. Yeah. That's so great to hear. So, Jason, why don't you share with us where you're originally from and where you grew up? Well, I grew up in uh, 
Southern California. Grew up in San Bernardino, which is, uh, as you know, it's, it's uh, about 60 miles south of, uh, southeast of LA. Lived there till I was in my, wow, till I was in my early twenties. Moved a little on. Tried to, tried to, um, actually moved to London. I, I went to London for a while and tried to join a band. Didn't do a lot of homework before I got there as far as, lodgings or how I'm going to uh, find a drum kit. And so things, it, it, it was very short-lived. Put mm. it that way, I came back to the San Bernardino area, joined a band and got really busy and was running a lot. And then moved to San Francisco for a few months, came back down, joined a different band and um, ended up in Orange County, which is where I was for a long time until we, we I met my wife and we moved to Seattle. Which of our we've been since basically since 2010. So, were you a drummer then in the band? I was, yeah, yeah, I was, I was a drummer. I was, that was my original. Um, I started out as a kid, uh, writing it just sort of by accident, joined a garage band with mm-hmm. uh, my best friend, Steve. I was a terrible drummer, as I think most, well, I think all, all beginning drummers are. I was <laughs> yes. particularly bad. And, but it was really fun. I, I, I was really hooked on, on playing in front of people, performing. I ended up, uh, after high school, I had really no intention whatsoever of, of going to college. I really wanted to get out of school as soon as possible. What's the Springsteen line? Um, mm-hmm. I, I forget the line, but he, he references, um, you know, Learning more from a three-minute record than you ever learned in school. So like that. <laughs> and we can, we so can relate. Yeah, that's kind of we true. We relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always been a huge music person. I mean, I, I think I've, I had a, had a imaginary band when I was like five. I'd oh, play that's on, cool. on the pillows on my bed to old Kiss records and, and Queen records. <laughs> oh, Alice boy. And Steve Miller. Yeah. Oh, and Steve Bay Miller, and yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, I, yeah. So I, I do that, and then, but I, I was a writer as well. I got into writing because my grandmother. You know, I was going to ask you: Do you have a favorite childhood memory? Well, you know, living in San Bernardino, um, it's the kind of place that I wanted to get away from mm-hmm. whenever I could. And luckily, my grandparents, when they retired, they moved to um, from San Bernardino. They moved up to Newport, Oregon, which is about way up on the coast. Beautiful place. They lived in a retirement community on a hill, on a, on this uh, hill overlooking the water. So from about eight to seven, I started going up there and spending most of my, most or all of my summers up there and did that from eight to seven, most years until I was about 19. And so I got this really nice break from the, the hottest part of the year. You know, San Bernardino can get in the triple digits easily. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 it can. Yeah, and so I, and I didn't want to be down on that. And, and Oregon's really beautiful. And, and I think that's part of what made me want to live in the Northwest. My wife lived here as a child as well in, in Washington. So my grandparents were just these, these wonderful people, really loving. They had a great relationship. They're very kind. They're funny. They're very silly people. Perfect. They sound like great grandparents. The perfect grandparents. 
Yeah, they were. They, we, we had this one example was in, in radio back in the days before disc jockeys. And, um, he's an, an announcer. So we, we made this little comedy group out the three of us. Huh. We called it the group and we'd make these little sketches, these little, um, impromptu, uh, improvised sketches and we'd record them on cassette. And I mean, no one heard them, only me, but we'd make these cassettes and, and, my grandmother though, always had a book in her hand. She's always reading and she was also always writing, working on this one novel mm-hmm. for years and years and years, always working on the same novel. And I eventually began to emulate her. I, I, I wrote too. I would find myself carrying a notepad and a pen everywhere with me. And that went on through, through, uh, elementary, middle school and then high school. I, I, by high school, I decided that I wanted to be Stephen King because <laughs> of that course. was, you know, that was, yeah, of course. he was, he was the, the, the big thief, as they say. He was, yes. he was, yeah, I, I loved his writing style. I, I didn't necessarily want to write horror. He does it very well. He, he could write anything, I think, because he's written other, other things, but he really inspired me to write. And so I, I was writing this really awful novel about this, this man who avenges the, the murder of his his parents, and it was a really silly book. It, uh, you know, I'm glad it's it was all written in pencil and pen. And <laughs> <laughs> since uh, you know, been been thrown away, but um, yeah, so I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be the next Stephen King. And then one day, like I said, I, I ended up in a garage band just by accident. Yeah. So and that was that. Well, you know. And. I think it would be really helpful here if you share with us a little bit about your personal history regarding being a musician and some of the things that led to your journey in becoming a writer. Well, I, I, I did both really because I was, I sort of had forsaken writing for music, mm-hmm. writing seriously, but I, I wrote even, even while I was in the band, I, I kept a journal and that was sort of how I, made sense of the world was by writing about my feelings and sort of confronting things on the page with music because I studied jazz for about six years with a couple of different teachers and got really involved in that and and found that it really changed my 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 music my playing I, I didn't listen to jazz when I wasn't I didn't for the most part listen to jazz I listened to um like punk rock and uh, post-punk and uh, a lot of alternative music and yeah. stuff, stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I was very open-minded and still am. I listen to classical and, and hip-hop and I, lo- I, I love music. Ask my wife. <laughs> um, so music really informed my teens and, and 20s and uh, playing music certainly did, but uh, I, it was sort of cut short and um, that was where writing sort of uh, fill the gap and I realized that that was what I was meant to do was was to write. Well, you had quite a transition at that point and that gave you the opportunity to really concentrate on your writing, it looks like. Well, I did. It was, it was, it wasn't the usual, I guess, transition. I call it more of a life interruption mm-hmm. because um, I'd been in bands for, for 12 years at a certain point. I, I I thought doing something with music, I thought that things were moving in a very positive direction and they were doing it kind of quickly. 
the last band I was in, we played to, I think, six people at mm. a little club in uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. The three of us, we, we moved into a studio apartment in Costa Mesa, where I was living. And you know, three people in one room and a cat. And it was... It was and a drum kit. Oh, that's hard. And it, well, no, the drums, the drums were actually at our, either at a rehearsal studio or oh, okay. um, in a car most mm-hmm. of the time. So, yeah, thankfully our equipment didn't live with us. But um, we, living together, allowed us to concentrate on the band. And mm-hmm. actually forced us to, because that's all there was to do. We lived... Um, didn't have TV, and thankfully I grew up without TV. I lived in sort of unincorporated part of San Bernardino where mm-hmm. we didn't have TV, we didn't have cable, and this is back in the 80s, early 80s. So I kind of grew up without television and moved in with these two, my, my best friends at the time, and all we did was uh, either rehearse or we would go along to to venues and give out flyers for concerts we were about to do and things moved really quickly we eventually bought a a tour van put out a a single um, on vinyl with a label in ohio and then we did an album with a a small record label and got ready to to release the album and we got a lot of we had been in a lot of press because we were playing a lot in orange county in l.a Mm -hmm. The day, the night before the album came out, I was at a party and got uh, jumped outside the party mm. by two complete strangers. And I don't know if you know what curb stomping is, but um, it's really it's all in the name. I mean, when someone stomps your head against the curb, that's oh, what, what uh, these guys did. And I woke up uh, a few weeks later, and I was. Basically, minimally conscious is what they called it. Mm-hmm. I was in a coma for a while, and I was in the hospital for four months. And when I got out, music was just sort of a thing of the past for me. I, I couldn't play anymore. I, I wore, I think I wore 23 casts on my left arm. I developed what's called contracture. I was injured on left right side of my head, which affected the left of my or left the right hemisphere of my head I was injured on mm-hmm. it affected the left side of my body shut it down basically so I couldn't walk and couldn't use my left arm but luck- luckily you know, thanks to my mother I was able to to overcome that and wouldn't have been able to without her so my goodness. Um, yeah well bless, yeah. Bless yes, her. thank God for your mom yeah absolutely absolutely well, wow, that's, out, that, I, that's just like incredible. That what a <laughs> what a story. No, I mean, I, you you obviously weren't doing any doing anything, and just was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, it was. I don't know if you know how well you know Long Beach or LA County. It was mm-hmm. in Long Beach, and Long Beach apparently, I don't know this from experience, but well, other than that, it, it has good and bad pockets. Apparently, yes, uh-huh. I was told. I have friends that live in Long Beach now, and and I we'd actually considered moving to Long Beach before this happened. The band had considered moving there. A lot of our friends live there. I was told that this this housewarming party that my then girlfriend was was having mm. was in you know it was, I guess later on I found out that it was in a quote unquote rough spot. Now where I'd grown up, um, San Bernardino, that is majority rough spots right. that happened and I went up in, in hospital for 
two months in hospital in Long Beach, and then they moved me to a sort of rehabilitation hospital mm-hmm. in Downey. And that's where I started to really get better. I couldn't talk before that. I, mm-hmm. I was mute because of the injury. That's where they did a lot of, of um, really proactive treatment on me that made it so I could walk and talk and have a normal life. When I got out of the hospital, after four months, I was in a wheelchair, but I went back to, to the hospital immediately, five days a week for outpatient therapy for a year, actually. That's, that's how I got out of the wheelchair. Went from a wheelchair to a walker to a, a series of canes. And then on just one day I'm there and my, my, one of my physical therapists actually pulled the cane out of my hand. I was leaning on it and she pulled it away from me and I was, you know, Whoa, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Lost my balance. And she said, okay, you're done with that thing. And I, wa- I followed my mother because she took me to my sessions. I followed her out to the parking lot to the car mm-hmm. later on and got in the car and got out of the car, walked in the house. My stepdad said, where's the cane? I said, Valerie took it away. You didn't need really? it anymore. Okay. How cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. And you replaced. It kind of reminds me. I was going to say, I was just going to say, and then ultimately you replaced that cane with a pen and paper. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Well, actually, um, before that, when I first got out, I, I started writing, and, and it uh, it just kind of came back. I I, I wanted to, to write about the experience, about what happened. So I was writing in a wheelchair. I, I was at my mother's computer with one hand because I did you know, my left hand was my cast. So just type. And I wrote uh, by 2010, actually, which was basically 11 years after it happened. By mm-hmm. 2010, I had finished a memoir about uh, my experience in music, trying to make a life in music, right. do that as my my career and also about my childhood somewhat and also also largely about uh, my injury and, and the immediate after effects of it so but the the the, the memoir is done it's just been kind of sitting i'd sent it off to a few places and got some rejection letters and just let it sit and you know went back to school i i like i said i left high school with no intention of going back to school so when I moved to Seattle, that's what I did. I went back and got my AA and then I uh, got my BA and then I moved back to California and did my master's um, in creative writing. Mm-hmm. And we came back to Seattle afterward. And well, so, if you're not getting rejection letters, notices, then you're just not trying hard enough. Well, that's what I say to everybody. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm, part of the writing community on, on Twitter. And mm-hmm. I, I understand it. I totally understand it. The people, you know, are get to get uh, sort of demoralized by rejection letters. And I tell them because I, I, now I submit on a daily basis to various magazines. I just got actually an acceptance this morning mm-hmm. from a magazine for an essay I wrote. And actually, that's funny. Fantastic. Ironically, the essay is about, Getting rejected. <laughs> That's what the essay is about. It's called Errant Crumbs, and it's about sort of pushing on, even though you get rejections. That's what the, it makes you stronger, and it makes you know, rejections make acceptance sweeter. 
Oh, that's a nice line. That's a very nice line. Yeah. And so true, though. So, it's true. It's totally true. And and I, you know, I mean, one of our, our um, first assignments in grad school, I had a cl- this class called Aspects of a Writer. Our, our final for the class was we had to, and it was a, a pretty simple, I think, task. We had to get a submittable account. And submittable is a platform through which you, you know, submit uh, poetry or fiction or nonfiction, anything to magazines. And it's really streamlined so that you can do it without a whole lot of hard work. It's, it's quite easy to submit things to, to them. And one of the things that our professor, Dr. Anna Leahy, stressed was that you need to, if you want, you want, you know, you're in grad school, you want to be a writer, but if you want to be read, and I just have written, but be read, you need to submit your work out to, to journals and, and, and look at the business aspect of it. And mm-hmm. so one of our assignments was to create a, a submittable um, platform or a submittable profile and then make a submission. Right. And so I, I, I had already done that. I already, already sent a few things off, gotten all rejections. I call them declines, but uh, they were rejections. Ooh, I like and, that, declines. Yeah. That sounds so much more gentle. Jason, I don't need to tell you this, but there are some really, really famous, famous writers that literally papered their walls with rejection slips just to to remind them that they were on the right path to success. And also, I think when you get a rejection slip or a notice, it isn't really always valid. It's just because it didn't quite fit what that particular editor was looking for. Doesn't mean it was poorly written. It just means it wasn't right for them. And I think sometimes writers, they they, take it personally. They take it personally. They don't quite understand that. You can't. Well, yeah, you can't, you can't take it personally. That's, that's, uh, definitely the kind of thing that will sort of torpedo any, any motivation you have. Yeah. You know, um, what was exciting for uh, both Angie and I, we had the opportunity to read several things that you've written. mm -hmm. And um, and you're very good, by the way. Um, But it it also you're very you're a very versatile writer. You're just not a one note writer, to use a musical term there. But you you know, you create poetry. You've even done journalism. But I'd like to know from you, Jason, what topic gives you the most pleasure when you write about or what it is that you write about that gives you the most pleasure. That, yeah, that's Does that well, sound I'd, better? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I just, I think, I guess people and relationships writing tends to focus on sort of the human experience. I mean, that sounds cliche, but uh, what makes us tick? I read a lot about families and family. Um, the novel I'm working on is about uh, family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the books I read tend to be about that. I, I think maybe if I hadn't studied English, been an English major, I might have looked at psychology. Because what makes people tick is endlessly fascinating to me. The human animal. I mean, you know, I, I have friends who write science fiction. I have friends who write fantasy and stuff like that but for me there's so much out that we don't mm-hmm. we still don't know about about the human animal people are so fascinating and that's 
really what I write about. And then you talked about, you know, writing poetry and nonfiction and fiction, etc. You know, my poetry tends to be about largely about family, the family dynamic. Um, my fiction, my nonfiction. Uh, I wrote a just wrote an essay that's coming out, I think, in June mm. about uh, witnessing someone's death. I was with my dad and a friend. We were in a car, and the, my dad's friend was in front of us on a motorcycle, and a car hit him. And it was out in our neighborhood, like I said, unincorporated, so we're right. pretty far from the rest of society. And he was killed, and we had to stay with his body for about an hour before the ambulance came. And you know, and and I wrote about that, sort of in the context of what it means to see something like that when you're that young, and. We were on our way down to San Diego for a Taekwondo tournament, and we did go to the tournament, and all three of us, my dad, my friend James, and I were all three in shock. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sure. When the tournament came home, and, and driving home, we had to stop. To, the only way to get home was to, to drive through that same road where where my dad's friend clan had been killed mm-hmm. and so we stopped and, and uh, shined the headlights on the broken glass in the road and that sort of sort of brought it home to us that it wasn't <laughs> we weren't all imagining this thing it right. really happened and yeah and that was you know we came home and it was a really it, it, that image stayed with me actually it happened in looking back it was 85 so I, and I still vividly remember the image of Glenn head over heels flying yeah. through the air toward, up above the telephone poles and then back mm-hmm. down. That's how high he went and back down and landing on his, on his back. Well, you know, that Jason, really, that really those, does leave an impression. Definitely. For sure. But yeah, it yeah. does too. I think it does two things for a writer because a writer is look using their imagination, right? And then they, Put they create the whole image of what you saw, and then you converted that to words, and then you thought about it. That's you know that's what makes for great writers. I think. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? You're- I was just thinking that you know when Jason's talking about these events, and they're so vivid in the way that you describe them. I think that as a writer, it's kind of interesting to see the thought process. And I, I never thought about it this way, but you really. Your brain is chronicling everything you see and experience. Good word, chronicling. Yeah. So, like for you, it may not come out exactly the same, but later on, I'm I'm betting that some of the emotions that you write, don't you think that you'll express it somewhere along the line? Absolutely, I think so. Luckily, you know, going back to to my grad school experience. Um, you talked about how I've written poetry in other, other, other forms. Um, and the focus of my MFA was fiction, mm-hmm. but uh, thankfully we were encouraged to write in as many forms as we could. So, you know, I, I was able to study poetry and creative nonfiction and screenwriting and use that to sort of, I, I was able to explore 
mm-hmm. things about my childhood and things that I'd seen, things like like the essays. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about when your articles and writings appear in journals and magazines. Share with us what some of those are and how did it personally impact you seeing your work published when you first started seeing your work published? How did that feel for you? That was great. I mean, it's, 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 it's enormously, um, it's, 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 it's a wonderful experience mm-hmm. having your work, seeing your work in, in print. Um, something that is my life actually tells me that I'm addicted to to the acceptance letter that I get. And the bylines. And why not? Yeah, right. Why not? And why not? <laughs> well, well, it's funny because I scroll my I scroll my email during breakfast, which I probably shouldn't do that. You know, I should just focus on my on my breakfast, but I I, I tend to doom scroll maybe. I look at my not doom scroll as in as looking at the news, but I'll, I'll look and see what what acceptances are what are the rejections typically? Yeah. I, I, like I said, I submit quite a bit. I submit every single day. And so I get letters back from journals pretty much every day, sometimes three and five of them. Um, I've, I've got like three today already. It's really, uh, something I enjoy. It's, I've been trying to be a writer for more than 20 years now. And I, I started out writing about music, mm-hmm. music reviews mainly. I did an internship with the Orange County Weekly for about six months, and that uh, got me some experience I'm writing about other things, writing about food. I did some food reviews and film, and, and also got paid, which was really nice. That's nice. Um, but there is that thrill of being being published, of seeing, like 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 you said, the byline, seeing your name in print. Oh yeah. Um, well, it, there's two things that happen there too. Uh, is when it's published. Then it's an affirmation or it's proof that somebody else is going to read it too, especially if the publication has circulation. Then you know, you know that and you're, you're like, oh yes, yeah, it's got read some my, longevity. My it's absolutely. I think mm-hmm. that's probably more important than anything. Than is you now you know a lot of people are going to read it and people are going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, it's funny because when I used to write for um, my college newspaper, I had a, a weekly column in the paper um, about music and I <laughs> used to complain to my wife that I felt like I had to pay people to read my work <laughs> now, <laughs> that, now that it's out there more and I've written for you know some some a few bigger places it's not quite the same as it was before um you know I, I again I owe a lot of that to grad school being in school I had to you know we we did generate quite a lot of material in mm-hmm. a short period of time I, I had one class that uh, we wrote upward of four pieces a week, and we workshopped them in class, so everyone mm-hmm. would read them, and the professor would talk about them. And I, I figured, why not and I'll submit these and see what happens? I mean, worst case scenario, they're going to say no, and I, to, I already know that you know. I knew then. I, I think that means subjective, and what one person declines or turns down, another person will, you know, enthusiastically accept, don't want it. And that's that's part of the writing process. You, you really need, 
the people that want to write or are writers, they shouldn't be bashful about sending it out because you never know what's going to happen. But that's that in, in itself is a form of writing and expressing yourself as why uh, a publication should consider the material that you prepare. So that's that's all part of the process of being a writer, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's so gratifying to even get one yes. I had written a piece for, for my class, a really, uh, really short piece because it would be called flash fiction. It was based on sort of takeoff on a Russian fairy tale because I'm a huge Russian lit fan. Mm-hmm. And I submitted this piece called The Clever Fool to, to a magazine and they accepted it. And I was thrilled by that, but also even more gratified when uh, my good friend Josh, who's a, a, in my cohort in school, went out and bought it. It was a print. It was in a <laughs> magazine called In Parentheses, and he, he bought a copy and, and showed it to me. And so happy to see that. And so that, that I think that sort of is what got me started on the journey of trying to get published as much as I could. And, and but like I said, I mean, I do published primarily short pieces, but I'm, I'm working on a novel. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you a question along those lines. We've interviewed other writers on the Thought Row podcast and they generally, we discuss the book that they have written or their novel. Yeah. Yeah. But Uh you seem to focus primarily on article writing, but it's my understanding that you do have uh, a book in the works. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, well, the shorter forms are kind of preparing me for the longer piece. The longer piece was actually my, it was once my MFA thesis. I wrote it in, I wrote it in three months, the first draft, of course. I had a really great committee and a thesis committee and they gave me, I think, more feedback than I probably deserved. Mm-hmm. They, they spent a lot of time with me and I guess something like 70 pages of, of notes on this little 40,000 word uh, novel that really felt like a novella at the time. But they said, there's a novel in there. You just need to de- develop it. And that's what I've been doing. And right now I'm on the fourth draft. The last round of revisions, I'm going to leave it alone after this and uh, start looking for a small small publishing house or mm-hmm. university press and or maybe even a, an agent. I'm not sure at this point, but it's definitely going to, I'm definitely going to publish it. Well, the right person or the, is going to show up at the right time. So they always yes. do. They always do. They always do. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, you know, I was thinking back to what Jason was talking about with the traumatic event that you lived through. How has that impacted your writing? Well, it, it's, it's odd because I'm still as much of a music fan as I ever was, but I think it's impacted my writing because it's given me, you know, I had that, that lived experience, I guess. Right. They, they call it, I have things upon which to draw. And, and I don't, I don't, by saying that, I don't, I don't mean negative things necessarily or traumatic things. I, I don't want to be the writer that only writes about his injury or only writes about a traumatic event that that you know is dominating my existence. I, I want to write about um, beauty and love and and the things that we as humans take for granted. 
I wrote a, an essay mm-hmm. last year about rescuing a baby crow at uh, down in downtown Seattle. It was it's one of the greatest things I think that's ever happened to me was holding this this baby crow in my hands and putting it back in a tree. It fallen out of a tree and into the back of a truck downtown downtown Seattle. And that was just a beautiful experience for me. But I think my injury has informed my writing because it has helped me maybe not take things for granted the way I might have or, or, mm-hmm. or probably did when I was younger. Yeah, I could see that. that It's kind of like a wake-up call. And I've yeah. heard people say that when they go when they go through some very traumatic times or trying times, it's like all of a sudden you have a new appreciation for some of the gentler times in your life that you experience. Yeah, they become more meaningful and also you yeah. live have sure. a tendency to live more day to day instead of trying to think about how you're going to be ten years from now. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. You know, both Angie and I write stories, and we love to say stories are what make us all uniquely human. Yeah. What do you think the value is for both the writer and the reader when it comes to stories? Well, I think writing and sharing our stories with each other connects us all. And mm-hmm. helps us to sort of see our shared humanity. And, oh, I like that. A, Shared yeah, humanity. It's a Chinese proverb. Yeah, there's a Chinese proverb that says uh, that a book is like a garden carried in your pocket. And I really like that, that proverb. Oh, yeah. It shows me that a book opens the world to us. You know, and and um, something that we gain from, from reading and writing, especially from reading, is reading teaches us empathy. Mm-hmm. It allows us to put ourselves in the shoes of other people, people in the story. Um, we can walk in those shoes and see the world through their eyes. And that's something you don't get from film. You don't get that from Facebook or hmm. YouTube. You no, because you have to use your imagination. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I love I love books that have been the films. I tend to prefer the books the book version because the film to me is like a really passive watered down version of, of, of what you've just read. I mean, I think, think of a book like, um, and I don't know if it's made into a film, but there's a great book called uh, half of the yellow sun, which is about the Nigerian civil war and mm-hmm. uh, the Biafran war and all and the conflict and all that. And uh, I, I look at how it's, how rich the storyline is, how rich the narrative is. And I, and I, whenever I see a film based on a book I've read, I always, well, I avoid them now, but I tend to find, I tend to go, wow, what about this? What about that? Mm-hmm. There's all these things that, that are really, I mean, it's not their fault. They're just, you can't, if you, you were trying to make a film exactly like a book, it would, it would be a 300, 300 hour film. Yeah, it would be but, long. <laughs> Yeah, but that's what I get out of reading, and that's mm-hmm. what I get out of writing as well. It's, it's this sharing of our of our humanity, and um, I think it's I think it's incredibly valuable. I think empathy is something that we really need to, especially now, show for one another and and try to learn it. If we if we don't really, if we haven't, unfortunately, if, if some some happened, if we haven't learned empathy, we need to. Mm-hmm. It's 
it's really it's incredibly important. Yeah. No more the than profound ever. words, definitely. Yeah. Jason, we know you're very creative. For sure. For sure. What has been your driving force and what would you tell others that want to follow their creative dreams? My driving force has really just been the act of creating something, the act of creation mm-hmm. in the simplest form, even. An example, during the pandemic, uh, I started writing poetry. I'd never written any poetry before. Mm-hmm. and uh, But the pandemic sort of forced me to slow down and actually just stop what I was doing. I was in classes. I was in the middle of my second semester at Chapman mm-hmm. when, when it happened. And I was then confined to our little apartment. My wife was at one end working from home. And I was at the other end studying and writing. And I'd write all day. And suddenly I started writing poetry. We'd moved back to California, so we could grad school, and, and we're now we're trapped in this apartment, literally a mile away from the university. And I was frustrated, and poetry was was became my therapy. It was very therapeutic for me because you know my my poetry is always about other people in general. It, it helped me to focus more on the fiction I was writing, mm-hmm. and they in turn informed one another. Um, but if I, I if I were to tell someone else, I, I, I think I see you have to follow your passion. And if, and if your passion is, is telling stories, I think for me, it was a, that's my stories could maybe because they help me see the world mm-hmm. a little differently. They could maybe help others too. And the best stories I've ever read, you know, Tony Morrison, Paul Oster, uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Right, like that, that reading a, a story of theirs helps me see my own life in a new perspective. You know, we're just looking at our time, and you're so interesting. And, and we you love want to hear all that you love, have to say. Yeah, unfortunately, we have more we're questions I want to ask you, but yeah. I think we're going to jump ahead a little bit. Pursuing any type of career, especially the one that depends upon self-motivation and creative development, how do you handle it when the creative muse doesn't seem to be anywhere around? I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mean writer's block, essentially? Yeah, writer's block Um, or... Whatever you want to call it, it's just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, talking about the muse and, and maybe when the muse leaves you. Yes. Momentarily. Uh, I, you know, I've talked to friends about writer's block. It is real. There are people who will say that, oh, I never have writer's block. And, and, you know, congratulations to them, but I, I certainly feel it at times. Um, part of it, I think, is, you know, motivation. And part of it's a struggle to, to meet your own expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, expectations that you, you don't even know are there. You're not aware of them. Um, but they're just waiting for you to sit down and ask you quietly what you're working on. And, and does this live up to your expectations of it? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I want, I want to get this other question in because everybody wants okay. to know this, the answer to this sure. question. Yeah. Writers all seem to have a place where they like to write most. Where do you like to write best, Jason? Two places. The best place is at home in dead silence late at night. But I can't always write 
late at night because I work. Um, so uh, I also love writing, and this is the complete opposite of that. I love writing in public in something like a, like a coffee shop. There's a great tea shop here in Seattle that I go to. Um, and I'll just go in and, and sit. And when I do that, I don't bring a laptop. I, I, I bring a notepad and just write by hand, mm-hmm. which is how I started. So I, I, I like to have both those those two two uh, mediums within which to write. So okay. two ways. Perfect. That's perfect. And then now we're going to ask you the question we ask everyone on our show. And that is if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? Uh, it would be, well, it would be David Bowie or Tony Morrison. And, um, oh. and neither from my past necessarily because they, they, you know, I saw David Bowie perform when I was 12. Yeah. In San Bernardino at this giant music festival. And I started reading uh, Tony Morrison about 15 years ago or so, maybe 20 years ago. It was in, when I'd first gone back to community college the first time. I went twice. The first time didn't work out and I ended up going back, but, um, I couldn't pass math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's a whole nother thing. Anyway, yeah. uh, sadly, neither, neither are with us anymore. Right. We've lost them both, but I would love to have just sat and talked with them and about music and books and gotten a glimpse of how they see the world and how the world shaped their work. Yeah. They would know. be fascinating. I agree on that. Well, I hate to do this, but Jason, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing your personal journey and kind of the process of you becoming a successful writer. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate that. But also, I think Edgy and I are really, I think the way you express yourself and your candidness about your life story, um, it's very meaningful. And I think a lot of people are really going to really appreciate what you had to say. Yes. Thank you, Jason, for being with us thank today. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I really yeah. had a great time talking to you both. Oh, I'm so glad because we really enjoyed um, speaking with you today. And now comes the time I let everyone know if you'd like to know more about Jason Thornberry. We will have links for him under the show guest tab on thoughtrowpodcast.com so everyone can learn more about him and please connect with him on social media and definitely check out his website. Yeah, definitely. And you're going to love reading his writings and and there's going to be plenty more writing coming out of Jason. I'm sure of that. That is true. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. Uh Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, Both Rod and I would really appreciate you buying us a cup of coffee. Just go to thoughtrow.com, scroll down a bit, and you can find that link right on our website on the homepage. It's really easy to do, by the way. Yes, it is. And all the money we receive goes to our production costs. Yep. And primarily because we want to keep our show commercial free and we want to continue to bring you the best quality content with great guests. That's right. Thank you for listening to Thought Row Podcast. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day. <laughs>